today you're listening to the third episode of Arcana Imperi. Uh, today, Gabrielle, my co-host, won't be with us today because she's at Junior Olympics for fencing. Good job and good luck to her. But we're going to have a very special guest with us today, which Dr. Katie Mack, who is a theoretical astrophysicist who studies cosmology, galaxy formation, black holes, and dark matter. She is a professor of physics at North Carolina State University. This, I'm joined by Katie Mack today, and she is a theoretical astrophysicist who studies cosmology, which is the study of the universe from the beginning to the end. She's an assistant professor of physics at North Carolina State, and she studies dark matter, black holes, and the ultimate fate of the cosmos. You have a famous quote, visible matter makes up only 5% of our universe, which is dominated by dark unexplained forces. Congrats on being one of the sparkly bits. You describe dark matter as being dark unexplained forces. Can you please explain it? Well, yes. Uh, first of all, it's awesome to think that that is a famous quote. Um, it's, uh, <laughs> yeah, so, so, in that um, in that quote, I'm talking not only about dark matter, but also about dark energy. And calling them forces is a little bit iffy. Really, they're, they're aspects of our universe that we don't understand. So um, dark matter is some kind of matter. So it's something that has mass. It has, you know, um, it interacts with gravity. But it seems to be something that doesn't interact with light, so we can't see it. It's invisible, and it also seems to just pass right through regular matter all the time, and so we don't notice it's there, except when there's a whole lot of it, we can feel its gravity. So that's on the scale of, like, galaxies. So galaxies can feel the gravity of dark matter. Here on Earth, we don't notice it. But most of the matter in the universe, most of the stuff in the universe that has gravity is this dark matter. It's some kind of invisible stuff. And so that's the dark matter. Now, dark energy is even more of the universe than dark matter is. Um, dark matter is maybe like 26-ish percent of the universe, whereas dark energy is around 70% of the universe. Dark energy is something that's making the universe expand faster. So we know that the universe is getting bigger, galaxies are getting farther apart from each other, and there's something that's making that happen faster and faster all the time, and we have no idea what that is, and so we call that dark energy, and it's just something that makes the universe expand more quickly. So we're still trying to understand what dark matter is made of. We're still trying to understand really anything about dark energy. And so when you add all that stuff up, what's left is this like 5% slice of the universe that's, you know, things like atoms and people and rocks and planets and stuff. That's only 5% of what the universe is made of. Oh, so you described people being sparkly bits. (laughs) So why do you yeah. say that we are sparkly? Last I checked. So, so I'm using that in actually a pretty technical way. What I mean is that anything that interacts with light, so you can bounce light off of it or it makes its own light, I'm calling that sparkly. Um, and uh, so that, you know, so that includes things like stars that, you know, sparkle and shine. Um, but it also includes people because people... Um, reflect light. So if you shine a light on a person, it bounces off, but they also emit light. So if a person has body heat, then they're radiating 
light in uh, infrared wavelengths. So it turns out, you know, if you see um, pictures of people with infrared cameras, that's because people are producing their own infrared light just by being warm. So we are sparkly in that sense. We are making light, we are interacting with light, and most of the universe doesn't do that. Oh, sort of like the We Are Made of Star stuff by Carl Sagan. Yeah, yeah, sort of like that. I mean, he, so what he's referring to is the fact that, you know, the the atoms in your body, um, the, the like things like carbon and nitrogen and oxygen, all that stuff is made from the insides of stars. And so, you know, we wouldn't be here, we couldn't exist as carbon-based life forms, as people made out of, you know, solid stuff. We couldn't be here without... Um, you know, stars having lived and died and, you know, thrown all these molecules into the, all these atoms um, into the cosmos. So he's referring to, we're stardust in the sense that we're literally like the dust after stars have, have formed and, and died. Um, I'm, just, I'm talking about something a little bit different, which is that yeah. I'm just saying that, like, we are uh, visible and most of the universe isn't. So why is the study of dark matter important? I mean, for me, it's important because I just want to know, you know, I want to know what the universe is made of. I want to know what it is that holds galaxies together. Um, I just think it's really interesting. But there are a few different reasons why it's important to study for, for physicists. One is that it's some kind of, um, it's probably some kind of new particle. And it's a particle that's not, it's not part of our usual understanding of how particle physics works can point the way to new theories of physics that are more complete than what we have now. So it'll help us to develop, you know, something you might call a theory of everything. Like if we understand what dark matter is, we're much closer to understanding how all of physics works in the universe. Um, but it also can tell us things about like how our galaxy came to be and how life came to be because dark matter is really important for uh, things like galaxies forming in the first place. So our Milky Way, the galaxy we live in, this collection of stars that we can see stretched across the night sky when we look out in a dark night, that wouldn't be here if it weren't for dark matter kind of holding everything together. So, you know, if we want to understand where we come from in the universe, we really do have to understand dark matter. And it may be that, you know, some of the things that we learn along the way will be useful for other areas of science, you know, like when when quantum mechanics was discovered, nobody knew that was going to be useful for cell phones sometime in the future. You know, when when general relativity, Einstein's theory of gravity came came to be, nobody knew that we'd be using GPS all the time and that it's important for that. So, you know, you never really know when you do this kind of research where it's going to lead in the future. So I also understand that you study black holes, which I'm very fascinated in. I've sometimes yeah. seen images where the black hole looks like a sphere with a big hurricane around it. Other uh -huh. times it looks like a tornado with a big drains. So what is right. the accurate way? <laughs> it's funny actually. So we we can see we can see a lot of places in the sky where we know black holes are. So we know that they're out there in the universe. And the way that we know they're there is that we see really bright lights. And that seems like it doesn't make sense, right? Because black yeah. holes should be black, right? Mm -hmm. They're supposed to suck all the light in and not let it out. But the reason that we see really bright lights where black holes are is because there's stuff falling into black holes all the time. And so they create like a disk of matter around them, kind of like the way that um, there's uh, the galaxy is a disk, you know, um, 
or the way that there's a disk of matter uh, of rings around the uh, around Saturn. Um, gravity a lot of times makes disks around heavy objects, um, and it's just because of the way that things are orbiting and falling in and stuff like that. And so, when black holes are out there, a black hole is a sphere, but there, but it it pulls a disk of matter around it, and that disk of matter is often like it's gas that's being really heated up just by falling in the same way that like. If you um, pull out the drain at the bottom of a bathtub, you can see this whirlpool of stuff falling toward the drain, and you don't. Even, the water is mostly invisible, but it gets really easy to see close to the drain because it's all crashing together and maybe making bubbles or something like that. And so, similarly, matter that's falling into black holes lights up, and so we can see it really far away across the universe because it emits a lot of light. So we know that they're out there, and we can usually see them just because there's bright stuff around them. But in terms of what they actually look like, I mean, they're spherical objects. So if we could see the edge in terms of like the way we define the edge of the black hole being like the the point of no return, um, it would look like a sphere. But it's not. It's not really like it's the black hole is really just the concentration of matter, and that doesn't really have an edge. The only edge is where if you go past that edge, you fall in and you can't come out again. Um, but so they're basically spherical things. And if we were able to look at them up close, they would look kind of like, they would look kind of like, um, I mean, it depends on whether there's stuff falling into them or not. If they have a disk of matter around them, they might look kind of like a, um, so sort of like a cartoon of Saturn, you know, where you mm -hmm. have like a circle with a disk around it. So it might look kind of like that, except that one side of the disk would be a lot brighter than the other side. And you'd have to get really, really like good pictures to be able to see that. So we don't really know, and it's a little bit hard to describe, but there is a telescope right now that's trying to get the first close good picture of a black hole. It's, it's called the Event Horizon Telescope. And the idea is that they will produce an image of what a black hole looks like really up close, and then we'll know for sure. And they've been taking uh, data, they've been doing observations for a while now, and I think in the next couple of months, they'll be able to show us uh, for, you know, with real data, what black holes look like. So, you know, keep an eye out for that. The, the Event Horizon Telescope is actually a bunch of different telescopes kind of working together, but it's they're working together as though they're just one telescope. Wow. Yeah. So, is there a black hole in the center of the Milky Way galaxy? Yes, there is. <laughs> and that's the one that the Event Horizon Telescope is looking looking at. It's uh, it's 6 million times as massive as the sun. Uh, no, sorry, 4 million times. 4 million times as massive as, as the sun. Uh, we call it Sagittarius A star, which is a weird name, but that's it's historical reasons we call it that. So it's 4 million times as massive as the sun. It's in the center of our galaxy. Every once in a while, it eats a little bit of gas, and everybody gets really excited. And it's got a whole bunch of stars orbiting it very, very closely. And so we know that it's there partially because we can see these stars whipping around, orbiting something that we can't see. So this that black hole at the center of our galaxy, it's basically not pulling any matter in. So it's basically invisible. Like, you can only see a black hole if it's pulling matter in, because then you can see the matter around it. But in this case, we it's, it's not really doing that, so it's not eating anything. So it's very hard to see. But we do see that there are stars moving around it, and there's some gas around it that falls in sometimes, and we see it light up a little bit when that happens. But mostly we see it by watching stars go around and, um, and get very, very close to it. 
and show us that there is something very, very massive in a very small space, and that's the black hole. Wow. Yeah. So, the black hole 101 question everyone seems to ask is yeah. if you fell into a black hole, assuming uh-huh. you were not killed horribly by the tidal forces, what would okay. you see or experience? If you don't want to get killed by the tidal forces right away, then you should go into the biggest black hole you can find. Because the bigger the black hole, the less the less um, less horrible it is going past the event horizon. So the event horizon is where, you know, once you get to that point, you can never come back. And if it's a small black hole, then before you get to the event horizon, you're ripped apart. Um, because the gravity is too much stronger at your feet than at your head, and it just rips you apart. Um, so if you go to a really big black hole, then the gravity uh, slope is like shallower, so mm-hmm. you don't get ripped apart as you go past the event horizon. So if you go to a really, really big black hole, like a supermassive black hole, and you start going past the event horizon, what you would see is you would feel normal. So like aside from the gravity effects and you know maybe there's like radiation from other stuff falling in or whatever, but like, your your own experience of time and everything would feel totally normal but when you looked out at the universe everything else would seem to be going much faster and as you got closer and closer to the black hole everything else would seem to be really speed sped up um and eventually you so you'd be going toward the black hole and the black hole would look black as you got close to it because no light is coming out of that thing. And so once you're getting close to the black hole, the only direction light can go is toward it. Um, but you, if you looked out into the universe as you're falling in, then you would see light coming from other things, and, and it would just it would look like everything sped up. Now, if somebody else was watching you fall in, then to, to them, you would look like you were going really slowly, and you would look like you were kind of getting frozen at the, at the event horizon. Because um, they wouldn't be able to see you after you went past. Because once you go past the event horizon, all of your light goes toward the center. None of it goes out to the edge. And so they would see you slow down as you approach the event horizon. You would seem to be going really, really slowly as you approach the event horizon. They would not see you fall in. But for you, you would just feel normal. You would feel like you're falling in, like you just keep going at you know, a reasonable speed. And you'd go straight in. You wouldn't notice anything weird as you go past the event horizon. So, essentially, you would be um, time-traveling when you use a black hole? (laughs) Um, I mean, you know, time travel is a funny thing in physics. You can't uh, can't ever go to the past. We don't know any way to do that. Mm -hmm. But the, the speed at which you go to the future is very dependent on what you're doing and where you are. If you're standing on the Earth and there's somebody standing at the top of a very tall tower, then you at the Earth... Your, your clock is moving more slowly than the person at the top of the tower. Anytime you're close to a massive object, a black hole, or even just the Earth, your, your clock slows down. So, like, your whole body, like, your existence slows down a little bit. So if you wanted to get to the future faster, basically, like, the, the speed at which you age, the speed at which you experience time, depends on where you are and what you're doing. So if you go really fast... If you move really fast through the universe, your time slows down. And if you stand on or near a heavy object, your time slows down. So if you you went off in a rocket ship and you went zooming around for a while in a rocket ship and then you came back to Earth, you would still be younger 
than the people who were who were hanging out on the earth and so it would be like you time time traveled into the future or if you stood at the bottom of this tower somebody else stood at the top of the tower for a really long time then you would experience less time than they did so in a sense you would get to like they would age faster than you did you know mm-hmm. so it, was, it would be sort of like you were in the future compared to them or something like it's I a guess. little bit it's a little bit real it's all relative that's the thing right <laughs> this is mm-hmm. relativity and it gets complicated but it's all about just how quickly you're traveling into the future how quickly your clock is going how fast you're aging all of that and so it's sort of like time travel like if you're falling into the black hole and you see everything else moving really really fast and if you were if you hadn't yet crossed the event horizon if you were getting close to the event horizon and then you came out again then you know something that for you took a couple hours might take years and years and years you know back on earth mm-hmm. but that doesn't i don't know if i call that time travel because you can only you only go one direction <laughs> no matter what you're only going toward the future so does the big particle accelerator in europe the lhc create black holes should we be worried okay so we should not be worried we should definitely not be worried does it create black holes um well we don't know so far it doesn't seem to have done so the the way you make a black hole is you put a whole lot of mass in a very small space and what the way that the lhc could potentially make a black hole is when it collides particles together if it collides them fast enough with enough energy and gets a very exact collision there may be enough matter in a small enough space then or enough energy in a small enough space to create a very very small black hole but that black hole would immediately like disappear so first of all it would probably be moving extremely quickly but it would also uh, it would also disappear within microseconds um, because black holes uh, according to Stephen Hawking and this idea of, of black hole evaporation, black holes disappear, they evaporate, and they evaporate much more quickly when they're very, very small. And so the kind of black holes that the LHC could hope to create would be extremely short-lived, and we would we would maybe be able to detect that they were created, but they could not have any effect on anything. Like, they definitely wouldn't have time to grow, they would just immediately evaporate. But probably, I mean, so far we haven't seemed to have created any with the Large Hadron Collider, and it's probably true that in order to make black holes with the Large Hadron Collider, we need physics to be a little bit different than we think, in the sense that there need to be, like, more dimensions of space than the three dimensions of space that we can see right now. There are theories that that suggest that it's possible, but we haven't seen any evidence of that yet. So 2017 was a big year for astronomy. There was the Nobel Prize for Gravity Waves with the MIT LIGO experiment and the total solar eclipse. Where did you go for the eclipse? I went to Columbia, Missouri, and I hung out with some of my friends, and we watched the eclipse in a field at a, um, like a bird preserve, and it was amazing. Have you ever seen, did you see it? Did you go? Yeah, we went to... Um, my dad and my sister and I, we went to South Carolina and we were part of the Citizen Kate experiment. Have you heard of it? No, what is that? Um, so basically, there were 70 observers lined up along the line of the eclipse. And they each took a sort of video of the eclipse. 
And they created a giant 90-minute mega movie of it where they could study a lot of questions they have about the sun, like the sun's corona, for instance, uh, all sorts of things. And uh, that sounds awesome. Yeah, it was it was just an amazing experience. Uh, we, yeah. Yeah, it was cloudy and it rained on our day. But oh, no. No, so but... Did you- yeah. So it it was cloudy during totality? No, no, no. During okay. totality, just for 2 minutes it just cleared up. Oh, nice. Right then. So you got to see so you got to see like the corona and everything. I know. Yeah, it was amazing. Oh, uh, yeah. So yeah, it was it was interesting cuz I've never I'd never seen one before and mm-hmm. I thought that like I thought it would be cool, you know. Um and I'd seen pictures and stuff, but I was not prepared at all. Like it was so much more like emotionally affecting than I thought it would be. It was like, it was, I don't know, it was kind of scary in this way that like, even though I understand all of the physics and I know exactly what's going on, it was still really unnerving. Yeah, it's like, I looked up like pictures and everything, but then when you're there, it's like, even yeah. the temperature and the sky darkened, everything. Like, yeah, off. yeah, it was, it was really weird. It was great. I was really mm-hmm. glad I went, but yeah, it was it was very, a very, a very big experience, and definitely anybody who hasn't seen an eclipse, I would highly recommend going to see one. So, how did you become an astrophysicist? Well, I wanted to do something like this since I was a little kid. So, when I was a little kid, I was really interested in like how things work, and I used to take things apart all the time, and. So I, I kind of wanted to do something where I could figure stuff out, you know? Mm-hmm. And so, and then I learned about black holes and about, like, space-time, and I thought that sounded so cool. Um, and so I found out that in order to study that as your job, you have to study physics. Yeah. And so I went to college, and I majored in physics, and then I went to graduate school, and I got my PhD in astrophysics. And, um, and then I just kept doing research projects and applying for more jobs to keep doing astrophysics. And, and then that's, that's how I, how I got here. So it's, a you know, in my case, I, I did the kind of, uh, you know, the academic track. So I, I got my, I got my, uh, education and then I did my research projects and then I got my, um, faculty job and not everybody goes that track. People do different things. Some people go off and do other things and back to universities and stuff like that but for me I, I kind of always knew that that I wanted to study physics and the universe and so I just kind of kept kept that up. So our last interview was with Professor Moon Dutchin, a math professor at Tufts. She mentioned that women in STEM uh, they aren't like a, su- a supply input problem. Half of math uh, undergrads are women, but as you move up to graduate, doctoral, postdoc, and faculty, the number drops each time you go higher, and the more male-dominated it becomes. So what's your view on this? How can women push through this to establish careers in STEM? Well, I think there are a lot of different things that contribute to why, um, you know, more women are uh, are leaving STEM careers, um, you know, before their male classmates. And I think some of it has to do with, you know, just like sexism. And Mm -hmm. I don't just mean like women not getting hired or something like that. I just, I mean, also like, um, a lot of my friends in academia have experienced things where their classmates put them down 
or you know they're they're treated badly by their bosses or their colleagues and it's just kind of unpleasant you know when that happens and a lot of times women are like you know I don't want to deal with this like sometimes their work isn't taken as seriously or sometimes um, you know they're not paid as well or they're they have to work harder to get the respect of their peers and a lot of women just don't want to deal with that and so that's that's definitely something that I've heard from people that that they just you know the culture is is you know kind of nasty to people and it's not just you know women who experience this um you know anybody who's an underrepresented minority will often have to deal with um you know people being you know unreasonable or or prejudiced or whatever so that's definitely something that i think often plays a plays a factor and that's something that everybody in stem fields and everybody in in science and math and engineering can you know work on just not doing that stuff <laughs> like mm-hmm. figure out where your prejudices are and notice when you have stereotypes about people and you know try actively to overcome those things so there's definitely things that people can do to you know just not be jerks you know to their to their colleagues and i think there are some other things that contribute as well sometimes like when somebody is going through academia there there are parts of the process that sometimes can make it difficult to to take time off to you know do various family things or or sometimes people um, get into relationships and because our society is what it is and because a lot of people are in relationships with people of the opposite sex, a lot of times people expect a woman to give up her career instead of a man to give up his career mm-hmm. when they want to have children and stuff like that. And so, you know, sometimes those kinds of like just social norms can get in the way. And sometimes, you know, departments can make things difficult for, for women um, by... Uh, expecting unreasonable things or or by um, making advancement no more difficult or by not having the proper support there are all kinds of stuff like that i think there are a lot of different things that contribute but there are definitely things that that we can do and to you know to make it better and and one of them is definitely to be aware of our own um, prejudices and, and never pretend we don't have them <laughs> you know yeah like um because you know people women have have prejudices against women too you know so that that comes into it everybody has prejudices against something you know and this is just stuff that that we have built into us sometimes or that we absorb from the culture and we have to learn to overcome that and make an effort to be welcoming and and um you know and and to not be not treat people unfairly you know that's something that that everybody can work on so what's a day in the life of an astrophysicist (laughs) what's changed the most in terms of the tools you use and the problems that have been solved so my day i spend a lot of time reading papers by other scientists um, sometimes to get information, sometimes to, you know, critique things or whatever. I spend a lot of time doing calculations, um, mm-hmm. spend a lot of time talking to my colleagues about science or going to seminars and, and lectures and things to learn about what other people are doing. So there's a lot more sort of conversation than I think people realize. Um, mm-hmm. I also do a lot of coding. So a lot of the work that I do because I'm a theorist a lot of the work that I do involves writing computer programs to solve mathematical equations, and um, I'll spend some time figuring out what those equations are, and then sometimes, sometime um, feeding it into the computer, and then seeing what happens. You know, and then I write papers and I give talks. So there's a whole bunch of different things um, that that come into it, and of course, 
if you're a professor like me, you do some teaching as well, and you might work with students, and so you have to sort of help students get their research going, and there's a whole lot of different aspects to it. So it's not, it's not just one kind of day, it's a lot of different kinds of days and a lot of different kinds of jobs all rolled into it. But in terms of what's changed, I think that it depends on what area of physics or astronomy you're in. I think that there's a lot more computational work now, a lot more coding than there used to be. And, and a lot of the observing, like if you're an astronomer who uses telescopes, a lot of times you don't actually go to the telescope. A lot of times you just get the data from the telescope, either because the telescope is operating robotically or because there's a dedicated telescope officer operator who is taking all the data and then sending it to the people who requested it. So there are a lot of different things that are sort of changing over time. So are there any problems that you thought would have been solved by now, but are just still kind of stubborn? I guess I thought that we would know what dark matter was by now, and I'm kind of surprised that we don't know what dark matter is yet. So that's one of them. Also, I thought that we would have a better idea of what comes next in particle physics. So a lot of people have been talking about a theory called supersymmetry, which is like the next step, it, it was assumed, it was kind of the next step after our current understanding of particle physics mm-hmm. that would kind of lead the way to, to better theories. And a lot of people thought that we'd have evidence of supersymmetry by now, and we do not. <laughs> so um, I don't know if that's because supersymmetry isn't, isn't the right theory, or if it's because it's a different kind of supersymmetry than we expected, or, mm-hmm. or what. But that's also something sort of surprising that that our current understanding of particle physics, which we call the standard model of particle physics, which is not very creative, but there you go. The standard model is basically all we've got, and we know that there are a couple of things that don't fit it, and dark matter is one of them. You know, it doesn't. We don't have a better theory yet, and that's a little surprising to me. So in physics, it feels like there are two big groupings of physicists: experimental physicists and theoretical physicists. How did yeah. you pick? Is there a Hogwarts sorting hat involved? Uh, is this even the correct grouping? Are there subgroupings? There, there are definitely lots of subgroupings. Those are the main ones in physics. In astronomy, you also have observers. So in astronomy, it's more like observers and theorists, whereas mm-hmm. in physics, it's more like experimentalists and, physicists and, and theorists. The way you decide, like, it kind of depends on what kind of work you want to do. So I used to do experimental physics. I used to be an experimentalist. I worked at a neutrino detector for a while, and... I, you know, built machinery and, and shot lasers at things and stuff like that. But uh, I was kind of more interested in the theoretical problems because I liked the idea of how creative you can be in thinking about different ways to learn about the universe. So I was attracted to those kinds of ideas because it's kind of hard to be an experimentalist who studies the Big Bang and black holes. It's possible mm-hmm. uh, indirectly. You kind of need to get more into the theory if you want to get into the sort of fundamental workings of those kinds of things. Mm -hmm. So that was what I what I ended up doing because I was I was interested in some of those, you know, deep questions where we don't have a lot of data yet and we don't have a lot of experiments and the thing that I do as my job is mostly so I don't come up with new theories and I don't use experiments and I don't use telescopes, but what I do is I take theories that we already have and then I talk to people who do experiments, and I talk to people who do observations, and I try to figure out how we can use new observations 
and new experiments to test the theories that we already have. So I'm kind of a go-between. In physics, you might call that phenomenology. So that's like a, a category between experiment and theory. But it's somebody who is trying to connect theory and experiment or theory and observation. And I like working in that area because I get to be really creative in terms of thinking of new ways to test ideas that people have. And it means I get to learn about the theory and the experiments and the observations. And I have to kind of know about all the things, which I find really fun, um, even though it can be overwhelming sometimes. I know you're very busy, so I just have one more question for you. Okay. So Richard Feynman had this quote that said, You see, that's why scientists persist in their investigations, why we struggle so desperately for every bit of knowledge, stay up nights seeking the answer to a problem, Climb the steepest obstacle to the next fragment of understanding to finally reach that joyous moment of the kicking and discovery, which is part of the pleasure of finding things out. What gives you joy? Is it the joy of um, sh- like sharing your discoveries with the community, like Sagan or Tyson, or is it more Richard Feynman's? Um, I think it's it's both, really. You know, I really enjoy talking about. Uh, science, I enjoy talking about physics to people because I get excited about these ideas and I like to share them because I just think they're super cool. And mm-hmm. so I get a real kick out of sharing them and finding, you know, interesting ways to talk about these things. And I, I like helping other people to experience that that sort of shock of understanding, you know, and that yeah. kind of um, mind bending stuff. Mm-hmm. But But I also find it just incredibly exciting and joyous when I understand a new thing. And sometimes that's something that nobody has understood before. And that's really exciting. But sometimes it's just something that I didn't understand before. And I, as I, you know, do the research and read the papers and, and stuff, I get to figure out something that I didn't know before. And, you know, that's really exciting too. I love that, as Feynman said, finding things out. I like, I love that process. You know, for me, it's kind of all of the above. I love figuring stuff out. I, I love being the first person to figure stuff out, which doesn't happen very often. Um, and I love sharing that stuff with the world and helping other people to experience that same joy of understanding a thing they didn't understand before. Uh, so thank you so much. I can't thank you enough for being on my little podcast. It's uh, um, all right. It was a pleasure. Yeah, it's so interesting um your answers they just really thought-provoking thanks so much for coming on to the show well you're very welcome thanks for having me bye bye